I'm Carol Coletta, and this is Night Cities. The quest to be a just and fair nation seems like a goal every American can rally around. But when you start unpacking the racial implications of that ambition, things can get complicated fast. Angela Glover Blackwell is founder of PolicyLink, a national organization that continues to lead the always difficult debate on race, class, and inclusion in America. And she's our guest today on Night Cities. Angela, PolicyLink is on a drive for equity, and you define equity as just and fair inclusion. Unpack that for me. What is just and fair inclusion, and how do you know it when you see it? Just and fair inclusion offers an opportunity for both a conversation and actions that build a society in which all can participate, prosper, and reach their full potential. That's all it means. But when you think about just inclusion, it suggests that maybe something unjust needs to be undone. So that just and fair inclusion suggesting that we need to have a society in which all can participate and prosper and reach their full potential requires that we pay attention to what's holding people back. That might be educational systems that are failing poor children. It might be a criminal justice system that has unfairly channeled too many young men of color into prison for things that were not violent and not particularly threatening and certainly ought not have them in prison for decades, which we know happens. It suggests that the places where people live that often don't supply them with access to pathways to opportunity in terms of schools and jobs and public transit, that we might need to fix that. So rather than just saying inclusion, which sounds like a wish, just and fair inclusion suggests that we need to be fair to everyone in society and undo things that because too often of the legacy of racism have unjustly placed people at um, a point in which they're particularly vulnerable. It really challenges society, just and fair inclusion. One, to value a notion that everybody can participate, prosper, make a contribution. And it says society has an obligation to help make that happen. Angela, one of the things I have always admired about you is I think you are such a good advocate, such an effective advocate for uh, for the cause of equity. And when I hear you talk about just and fair inclusion, uh, there's nothing particularly threatening about it. And I think a lot of people would agree. I think you talk about it in sort of basic American terms. So what gets in the way? What what are people fearful of? What what do they recoil on when you when you say those words? First, Carol, I hope that people don't recoil when they hear the words. I hope that what they hear is a lifting up of America's core values, a return to first principles. And I think that is what people hear. So if I say what I'm about is just and fair inclusion, I think most people would nod and say, yeah, I am too. It's only when you start to suggest the strategies that people begin to sometimes recoil. I think they recoil because we have a mindset in this nation right now that we can't afford the things that create the pathways that help so many Americans get into a life of the middle class. It's not true. We're not a poor nation. We need to stop acting like one. But there is this notion that we don't have enough money. There's another problem out there and that people have seen some people left behind for generations 
particularly people who are in rural communities, people who are in urban concentrated poverty. People have seen generations of languishing, forgotten in poverty, and they think there's nothing we can do about it. And while it would be good to have just and fair inclusion, they think we don't have the knowledge. It's not true. We have more knowledge than ever. We are a nation in which you show me a problem, I can show you a community someplace that's fixing it, but we're not shining a bright light on those solutions. We're not telling the story enough that the American people feel that we have the solutions to go forward. Another reason sometimes that people recoil is they would like to have the conversation about just and fair inclusion without ever talking about race, because nobody wants to talk about race. And when people get a sense that they have to deal with it somehow, they reject that. They don't want to talk about it. It's uncomfortable. People want to get over it. But you cannot get to just and fair inclusion if you don't have targeted strategies that get us to universal goals. And those targeted strategies very often are focused in Latino communities or in African-American communities where we have to deal with the fact that the legacy of discrimination and continuing discrimination is holding some people back and off the path. So it's those things of uncomfortable conversations, trying to get people to believe something they don't really believe, that we know what works, and thinking we don't have the resources to make the investment that's essential, when in fact we do. What do we know? What do we know about what works? You say that PolicyLink lifts up what works. Okay, what works? Education works for sure. Even as we were in our deep uh, recession, people who had college education did much better than people who did not. Even now, as we're getting to 6% or under 6% unemployment, if you have a college degree, you're at 4% or less than 4%. And if you don't have a high school diploma, you are not only incredibly likely to be unemployed. It is frightening how likely you are if you are black or Latino without a high school diploma to end up in jail. And so we know education works and we know that education works best when children start school ready to learn. This is proven, it is beyond debate. High quality early childhood education gets you on a good start in school and good schools combined with coming to school ready to learn, prepare you to go on to college and get into careers, that works. We know that it works to be able to provide the surrounding supports that children need in order to really thrive. Middle class families with resources have been conducting an experiment for decades now in which they have not relied just on a good school to make sure their, ch their children get everything they need. They have also been investing in stimulating programs during the summer, really good extracurricular activities, they have been going the extra step for their children so that they surround them with supports and things that are stimulating that cause them to understand their options. The Harlem Children's Zone has done that for poor black children in a poor neighborhood in Harlem. They've taken what middle-income families with resources do and made sure that there are after-school activities, that there are mentoring programs around, that children get theater and art and other things to be able to explore their talents. So we know that that works. We also know that 
getting a job training opportunity isn't much good if it's not related to a job. So we've had some incredible programs around the country where employers with jobs work directly with job training programs and community colleges to help develop the curriculum so that what they're learning prepares them for real jobs. And we've seen amazing programs like that all across the country. We also know that there's nothing as powerful in terms of creating access to opportunity as living in an economically integrated neighborhood. I grew up in a segregated St. Louis, Missouri, and almost everybody who lived in my neighborhood for miles was black. And the places where we went to school and church and played, they were all black. But I often tell people that that block that I grew up on in St. Louis, Missouri, while it was all black, was the most integrated place I've ever lived because it was economically integrated. We know that works, that if you bring in people who have higher incomes with people who have lower incomes, all kinds of positive things come out of that. Let's pursue economic integration a minute because, as you say, there's there's nothing as powerful as an economically integrated neighborhood to helping people move up uh, across generations economically. But you know we don't do that well in America. In fact, if anything, we're, we're going in the opposite direction uh, of the neighborhood you grew up in. So how do we make progress? Where do you see us making progress? Well, the first thing we have to do is acknowledge that what you and I have just said is true. We have moved so far away from economically integrated neighborhoods that there are probably now a whole generation of people who never knew that that used to be the way it was. Um, that it used to be that people who were low income and high income all lived in the same neighborhood. That was true across America. Uh, part of it was because before the advent of the automobile and the suburbs and all those things that spread us out, people lived close in. And then once we once we had cars and all of that, people were still living close in. It was really the coming of the suburbs that caused people to be able to spread out. And in that spreading out, we began to build more neighborhoods in which people always all had pretty much the same income, very high income, middle income, poor neighborhoods. So first, people need to know that that's not the way it has to be. And they're starting Starting to experience, which I think is good news, as people are moving back to cities, young people who have grown up in the suburbs moving to cities, and people who uh, are retiring in the suburbs moving to cities, people are beginning to reappreciate what it means to live in places where there is difference, income difference, racial difference, age difference. It's a good thing. There are some wonderful examples of policy pushing in that direction. In New Orleans, when in the rebuild after Katrina, a lot of money was put into having supportive housing being integrated into neighborhoods. And that has happened. And we have thousands of housing units where people have low incomes and they have special needs in one way or another that they require services. That's being integrated in community. And I think New Orleans is becoming a model for how to integrate supportive housing into community. In Oakland, California, the MacArthur uh, BART station is being built and it's being surrounded by mixed income housing, 624 units, 108 of them below market, some of that quite below market, 
that is also an example from the Fruitvale BART station right here. There are several efforts going on across the country in the Twin Cities where they're doing light rail. They're making a real effort to have integrated housing, low-income housing, very low-income housing right there with market rate housing. So we're starting to have some good examples of it. But I think one of the big policy levers is really what HUD has been doing around what they call affirmatively furthering fair housing. For the most part, over the years, that has really been looking at housing based on racial segregation and pushing to break that up. But we have come to understand, and HUD has embraced it, that real opportunity housing doesn't just focus on racial integration, but it focuses on income integration. It focuses on housing that's near good schools, housing near important amenities like grocery stores and parks. And so the new rule around affirmatively furthering fair housing will have people all across the country sitting down and looking at where they're going to put low-income housing in relationship to the things that people need in order to thrive. Schools, grocery stores, parks, public transportation, jobs nearby. I think having responsible leaders across the country thinking about this will make a difference because I do not assume that everybody is driven by a goal of trying to keep houses racially segregated and isolate poor people. I think many people, as they think about what it takes for people who low income to be able to move on their desire to do better by their family. And we have an opportunity to plan so that in the placement of housing, we're promoting that. If people have to think about that, I think we'll see some new models emerge. But I'm not naive. I know that we are very segregated in our living patterns. And that's just not race, but it's based on income and that we have a long way to go to fix it. I'm hopeful because models are emerging and people are having to think about it and uh, see if they can't get more public resources by addressing the inequities. You've mentioned HUD, uh, which, of course, is a federal agency. But a lot of people, you know, this have given up on any progressive policy coming out of the federal government. Some people have given up on any policy coming out of federal government, period. So let's focus on cities. Name your top three priorities for local policies for achieving just and fair inclusion. Well, I think that one of the things that it, that we definitely have to do locally is look at income disparities. Look at the fact that so many people who go to work every day cannot work their way out of poverty. And what we're seeing is local communities taking up the need to increase the minimum wage, even as the federal government has not moved on it and some states have not moved on it. And so what we see is that that there are uh, states that are moving on the minimum wage. We have Alaska and Arkansas and Nebraska and South Dakota. And then we have cities that are moving on the minimum wage, San Francisco and Chicago going to $15 an hour. And then we have Oakland looking at $13 an hour. And we have about seven other cities that are taking a look. I think that's huge. The other thing that we can do locally is that we can try to make better use of the public resources that we have to spend. You know, local communities are always trying to attract a new stadium or build a new convention center or revitalize the downtown. When those things happen and we're using public dollars to entice in these private investments, it's an opportunity to really increase employment opportunities by requiring that people locally are hired for these jobs. 
it's an opportunity to increase training opportunities by making sure that apprenticeships go to people who are local, particularly some people who are local and very vulnerable, like formerly incarcerated veterans, people who are homeless, long-term unemployed. They've done that in Oakland, California, in terms of the Army base. So we're seeing that. It's happening in Los Angeles. It's happening all across the country, using public investment to be able to increase earnings, to increase employment opportunities, but also to increase entrepreneurial opportunities. That we know that Black, Latino, Asian individuals are three times as likely as white people to start small businesses. But too often, they're very small businesses. They're not tomorrow's businesses. They're not adequately capitalized. We can use public investments to make sure those contracts get to people who are not just the usual folks and that people have the training and support to make a success of it. That's a Another thing that can happen locally, and the third thing that we can do locally is really invest in education. Invest in education, education at every level, from preschool through associate degree. Make sure that we are actually using our public dollars effectively and bring up the wages for those people who are low-wage workers because the low-wage workers are overwhelmingly now people of color. And as people of color become the majority in this nation, if they don't become the middle class, there'll be no middle class. So making sure that we're increasing education opportunities so that children can thrive and wage opportunities so that families can support um, the children in the way that they deserve. Speaking of education, you recently announced an equity solution that calculated how much the U.S. economy would add if we could close the racial gaps in income. I, I was, as I was looking at it, Angela, I was wondering how much of that gap can it be explained by the difference in educational attainment between whites and people of color? Thank you for mentioning that work. We have been so proud to partner with the Program for Environmental and Regional Equity at the University of Southern California that's led by the economist Manuel Pastor. Our two organizations have created an equity atlas in which we looked at 150 regions, all 50 states, and the United States as a whole in the District of Columbia. And what we found is that Uh, If you actually invest in making sure that people who are rapidly becoming the majority, and that's what this Equity Atlas will show, invest in people so that they can begin to perform on the wage scale and employment as well as people who are white, it's a tremendous boon to the nation. In fact, we found that if there had not been racial gaps in income in 2012, the national economy would have been $2.1 trillion stronger. You ask, is that just education? Well, the truth of the matter is that we did not control for education in this study, but what we do know is that if you look at every level, whether it's high education or low education, that people who were white consistently make more than people who are not. African-Americans and Latinos with college degrees, for example, earn about $5 less per hour than their white counterparts. That adds up to about $10,000 a year less. So it is not only education, though we know that people of color have not been able to access higher education to the same degree that people uh, have been who are white. Angela, you said earlier, and you're so right, of course, that race is always the hard discussion to have in America. 
And, you know, you're not going to willingly drag a lot of people to that conversation. And I fully appreciate what you said. You know, you can't skip over it. You can't ignore it. It's there. It's staring us in the face. And it clearly accounts for differences in income and, and, and status in our country. And nothing about that is good. But is there a way that you can do the work without forcing the conversation. In other words, in other words, again, using your considerable talents, I think, to describe the work that needs to be done for fair and uh, just inclusion and do it in a way that you can get a whole lot of people on, you know, to that table, to that work and how, oh, I don't know, work around the conversation about race or I, I guess skip the uncomfortable parts. Is there simply no way? There's a way, and I do it all the time. I am actually usually doing two things. The first is understanding the contribution that our racial history has made to the inequality that exists, to the inequity that exists, and the challenges that we have. I want to understand it because I want to operate in the reality of how we got here. Then I think about what has to happen to fix it. And as I think about what has to happen to fix it, it's necessary to understand that the racial dynamic has to be brought into view to come up with a good solution. Then once you come up with a good solution, you don't have to mention race again as you're an advocate for that solution. Let me give you an example. That we have a situation right now in which the unemployment rate among black men is appalling. I'm gonna take a place where it's particularly shocking and that's New Orleans because we've been doing some work there. Among African-American men ages 16 to 64, the unemployment rate is 52%. 52% of black men in that age group are unemployed. Now, how did that happen? You've got to go back and look at the racial discrimination, the marginalization, and how that marginalization and discrimination caused people not to be able to have the kind of jobs that allow them to support their families. We also have to look at the way we have racialized the criminal justice system. And so many black men have gotten caught up in that criminal justice system. And a lot of that is over surveillance in their communities, over sentencing for offenses that happen to black people around drugs. Then the same thing happens with white people and they don't get those same sentences and long amount of times that people have had to stay into prison for harsh sentencing. Then you see what's happened is that many of these men will come out with criminal records in their felonies, and that makes it almost impossible for them to get a job. Therefore, understanding everything I've talked about so far, I've been talking about race, but once you come up with a solution, and the solution is not to have to check a box saying I have a felony every time you go for a job interview, but to only have to disclose that when it becomes pertinent for the job, maybe never at all, to separate the kinds of things that one has, might have to disclose from what one wouldn't have to disclose, and you have a strategy that you can talk about without mentioning race. All you have to say is we should allow people who have served their their time to be able to come back and get jobs because it helps everyone for people to get employed. So we can have a conversation about employment. I'll give you another example. We know that many children who are of color 
do not have access to early childhood programs because in the communities where they live, there aren't any early childhood programs for them to access, or sometimes the ones that are there are not of high quality because you don't have the high quality programs in their communities. You end up having a lot of home daycare or other things that may not be meeting the standards. Why is that? Because of a history of housing discrimination, a history of disinvesting in low-income communities. We need to understand that as we come up with solutions. But once we come up with a solution, which might be that every school should have an early childhood program and it should be of high quality with teachers who are particularly trained to do that with the highest expectations. So no, Carol, we don't always have to talk about race, but if we don't understand how we got there based on race, advocates and policymakers and others aren't going to be pushing the right policies. But once you get the right policy. You don't have to engage everybody in a conversation about that all the time. I'll give you one more example. You can find out that you are in a low-income Black community when you're in a place where you can't find a grocery store. It defines low-income Black communities, the absence of full-service grocery stores. I have personal stories and professional stories that will underlie for you that that is a result of racial stereotyping, of racial discrimination, of the way we have disinvested in communities where low-income Black people live. However, once you say, if you want everybody to be healthy, they need to have access to fresh fruits and vegetables, and it needs to be nearby, we need strategies that put fresh fruits and vegetables nearby. And being able to get state or federal money to put grocery stores where they don't exist, being able to encourage farmers markets in every community across the neighborhood. You don't have to have a conversation about race once you've got the strategy, but getting to the strategy often means you have to be explicit about who needs it and how we're going to make sure they get it. Angela, you are a master at turning a Medicaid discussion into a Medicare discussion. And I love you for it because that's what we need to get serious about this problem. And I'm so thrilled to have talked to you today on Night Cities. Thank you so much for being our guest. And thank you. Angela Glover Blackwell is founder of PolicyLink. You can follow us on Twitter at hashtag Night Cities and at C. Coletta. Find out first when new conversations are posted by signing up for our newsletter at nightfoundation.org forward slash features forward slash Night Cities. You've been listening to Night Cities. I'm Carol Coletta.